what the hell's? You know, I had a friend, uh, a guy I kind of mentored for a while, and he was at a church where he once almost got fired, got in a lot of trouble, because he entered the stage about 30 seconds too early. He missed the cue. And uh, in this church, that was a very, very, very bad thing to do. Uh, I'm so glad this isn't one of those kind of churches. <laughs> uh, I, and that, in case you didn't notice, I got up a little early because I thought I forgot about the offering, and I'm really eager to get to this because I got a lot of ground to cover and a little time to do it. And so I was like batting at the bit, forgot about the offering, stood up, kind of funny. But that's, that's called being human, all right? Uh, I could never live in an environment where you're not allowed to be, allowed to be human. So here's the thing. We're in a series uh, where uh, we are looking at uh, the crucial stories of the Bible, the turning points in the biblical narrative, uh, in order to uh, help people see the kind of connected dots, see the big picture. We're looking more specifically at the theme of covenant and kingdom and how that's woven throughout Scripture at crucial points. Um, and gives us a whole kind of big overview. So this morning we're going to be talking about the new covenant, the covenant that was inaugurated uh, by Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to be looking in particular at the question, uh, why did Jesus have to die? Or what was it about Jesus' death that saves us? How, how does that work? It's a very important question because how you answer that question will, to a large degree, determine your picture of God, but also your understanding of the new covenant. And even your understanding of the Lord's Supper, which is uh, our commemoration of this, this covenant. And what makes this particular question especially, I think, important is that there, there, is a, there are, among evangelicals, there's, I think, in my opinion, some confusion about this. Um, a lot of folks are taught, I was initially taught this, that the reason Jesus had to die was because the Father uh, just can't, well, the Father has to vent is just wrath against sin. It has to be vented. Um, it's like it's, it's a part of God's nature. So he has to have wrath against sin. And yet he, he loves sinners and wants to save sinners. But he can't do it unless, unless someone pays the price for their sin. And so either we pay the price for our sin, which in the traditional teaching means that we're going to be uh, incinerated eternally, or uh, Jesus pays for our sin. And so uh, the father ends up slaying his son uh, as a sacrifice to vent his wrath against sin so that now, now that the, his wrath has been satisfied, he's able to welcome us in uh, as, as his children. Now, I've taught about this before, and there's a lot of problems with this view, and I'm not going to get into all that because I've touched on it in previous sermons. I'll just mention this one thing, which is, I think, the most unfortunate consequence of this violent understanding of the atonement. Um, and that is that it puts at the center of the Christian story, and really the center of the Christian worldview, the myth of redemptive violence. And that's a phrase that just refers to this belief that humans have had, at least from, from the time of the fall, that violence will redeem us. Violence solves problems. If we just had more violence against the right people, then we could fix this world. That's the myth of redemptive violence. And so... In this violent view of the atonement, God solves the ultimate problem, which was our estrangement from God. God solves that problem through violence, by killing his son. And see, if, if God solves the biggest problem by means of violence, well then, it's understandable that we should solve lesser problems by the same means. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. And we end up we always imitate the God that we worship. And if the God that we worship, if at the center of the whole thing, the central revelation involves him killing his son to solve a problem, well then, we'll be a people who are inclined to rely on violence to solve problems. 
Now, this wasn't the view of the church for the first thousand years of its history. For the first thousand years of church history, if you were to ask, ask the average person, why did Jesus die? They wouldn't have said to placate the Father's wrath. They generally would have rather said to free us from Satan's wrath. Uh, we're in bondage, and, and the problem is that we had put ourselves in the slavery to these principalities and powers, and so Jesus' death was the means of freeing us from that. But as soon as this violent view of the atonement comes into place in the 11th century, you find right after that, for the next 600 years, Christians are engaged in almost non-stop violence. Now, there was violence before, uh, after the 4th, 5th century, when the church got in bed with the state. It's, Christians didn't have that many qualms about, about using violence, so there was violence there. But it was never officially sanctioned by the church for religious purposes. Now, it becomes part of the church's methodology. And you find right after this violent view of the atonement comes into play, we always, we always imitate the God that we worship, we find the church starts sanctioning the Crusades and the Inquisition and the, the witch hunts, going after witches and heretics, and, and then Christians turn on Christians, and we have 300 years of almost unbroken Christian-on-Christian Christian violence. It was horrific. It was horrific. And it's not a coincidence that those two things go together. A friend of mine, uh, Anthony Bartlett, wrote a book on this called Cross Purposes. Um, it's, a, I think, penetrating historical work, showing the, 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 the connection here. So that, 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 I'm going to argue here that if we understand the past, if we understand the New Covenant, in terms of the Passover, which is what the Lord's Supper is all about, if we understand it that way, we come to an understanding that the, the early church was right, that Jesus died not to placate the Father's wrath, but to free us from Satan's wrath and free us to be reconciled to God. Now, I'm going to tell you up front here, nerd alert, and this is a major nerd alert. We give these about once a month or once every, whatever. Whenever it's going to be a little nerdy, we give this alert. And this is going to be a major one, all right? It's going to be dense. It's going to be intense. There's going to be a lot of scripture. Um, and I'm going to be unpacking it in a way that will be new to some of you, at least. Uh, maybe most of you, if you've read Cross Vision uh, or Crucifixion of the Warrior God, this will come easier to you than, than it otherwise would. But it, it's going to be, that will add to the challenge here. So I'm going to ask you to lean in. In fact, I don't know if I've ever uh, demanded so much of an audience as I'm demanding with, with this, this uh, message. Uh, you're going to have to lean in. Because here's the thing. So a lot of the New Testament's teachings are actually tied into Old Testament teachings, and they build on them and transform them. Um, we're not that familiar with the Old Testament, so we often miss these connections. But when you can understand what the New Testament teaching is building on, and you understand how it operated in the initial text, it often deepens your appreciation and your understanding of the New Testament teaching. And that's the case with the Passover. We're going to see here that uh, what Jesus says when he inaugurates this new covenant is building on a tradition that goes back to the original Passover, which was uh, found in, uh, in, in, in uh, Exodus, starting with chapter 12 and, and going on. But to get at this, it requires some digging. And digging takes time, and digging takes mental work. Uh, and I don't have much time, so there's not going to be much else but digging in this. I had to cut out all the frills and all the whatever. We're going to get serious here. In fact... Honestly, this is not today, this is not a sermon. This is, one of, this is a good old-fashioned, intense Bible study, all right? So you guys ready for a Bible study? You ready to dig? Can you dig it? All right. Okay, Bible study time. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22 where we find uh, Jesus giving the words that really inaugurate this new covenant. 
It says this starting in verse 15 of chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice, it's a Passover meal. That's important. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this divided among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is saying, let's, let, let's, let's lock in this moment because we're not going to do this again until the kingdom comes in fullness. And so the Lord's Supper is, is a looking back and remembering what Jesus did for us, but it's also looking forward to the time when all this will be fulfilled. And then he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is to be poured out for all of you. I think that's the end of it. Yes. Um, so so he, this is a Passover meal. Now, when, when Jews celebrated the Passover meal, they were, of course, thinking about the sacrificial lamb. Uh, and they would sit and they'd tell the story of how God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and eventually brought them into the promised land. Uh, the Passover is the night where that really began. Um, and it was a, the moment of liberation. And so they talked about how they had to have an unblemished lamb and, lamb, and they had to sacrifice this lamb. And they had to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts of the houses. Uh, and they told the story of the destroyer. The passage goes like this, Exodus 12, 23. It says, The Lord will pass through and strike down the Egyptians. And then remember, this is after there's already been nine plagues that Yahweh has, has allowed to come on, on Egypt as a way of trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go, to let God's people go. Uh, it didn't work. And so he, this is the last thing. This is, the, this is the, the, fatal, the fatal move. For the Lord will pass through and strike down the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. So when the Lord sees that there's blood on the doorpost, then he, he prevents the destroyer from doing what the destroyer wants to do. But when there's not blood on the doorpost, the destroyer is, is, is free to do what the destroyer wants to do. The statement presupposes that there is this thing called the destroyer that's always wanting to kill kids and kill everything else. He's the thief that comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Like a pit bull just wanting to get a raw steak or something. This beast is always there. Yahweh holds them at bay. But in this case, when there's not blood on the doorpost, the, the destroyer is allowed to do what the destroyer wants to do, and that is kill the firstborn son uh, in, 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 in all of Egypt. Um, so the, where there is the blood, folks are protected, and where there's not the blood, they're not protected. The destroyer kills. And that is what finally causes Pharaoh to give in and to let the children of Israel go. So it's by this means that the children of Israel get out of Egypt. Now, this is the framework for the whole new covenant that Jesus is establishing here. Uh, when Jesus says that my body will be broken for you and my blood will be shed for you, in a Passover context, what he's doing there is he's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the unblemished lamb that is to be sacrificed. And in the context of the Passover narrative, what he's saying is, my role as a sacrificial lamb, by my, my blood being shed and my body being broken, I will... Uh, defeat the destroyer, protect you from the destroyer, and get you out of Egypt to get you into the promised land that God has promised you. 
The new covenant is, the, is, is really the new Passover. In fact, that's the title of this message. It's the new exodus bringing us into the new promised land. But here's what I want to see that's crucial. That the way that Jesus' blood defeats evil. And by the way, whenever you hear the blood of Jesus, we're covered by the blood, the blood, the blood. It's not that there's something magical in the blood, like, like demons are afraid of blood or something. It's rather the blood stands for the value of, of sacrificial love, the sacrifice love. His blood was shed as a way of saying he demonstrated love by sacrificing. So whenever you hear blood, just, just, just realize that that's standing in the place of sacrifice life. And so Jesus, the way that Jesus' blood defeats evil and frees us from the Egypt of Satan's bondage is the same way that he defeats evil in the first Passover. That's what I want us to see. He lets, he lets the destroyer, which is one manifestation of evil, strike at Egypt, the heart of Egypt. That's what that firstborn son's all about, which is another manifestation of evil. So what God is doing throughout the, the Exodus, Passover Exodus narrative is allowing one form of evil to act against another form of evil, always as a stepping stone on the way to having evil ultimately self-implode, which we'll see here this morning is what, exactly what happens on the cross. So God wisely turns evil against itself. This is how God responds to and defeats evil. That's why you find throughout the Bible numerous passages and I cover these in, in, in Crucifixion of the Warrior God and Cross Vision. Numerous passages that talk about how sin always ricochets back on us. God turns our own evil back on our hands. We end up punishing ourselves. There's a ricocheting sort of effect with it. So the, the seeds of the punishment of sin are built into the sin itself. So evil is always inherently self-destructive. And God wisely turns evil on itself, and that's the way he defeats it. That's, and that's how and why, we're going to see, that's how and why Jesus had to die. And this is how God defeats evil on Calvary, because this is how God always defeats evil, and this is the way that we're called to defeat evil. And so Jesus didn't die to placate the Father's wrath. The early church was right. He died in order to free us from Satan's wrath and to free us to enter into the promised land of everything God has in store for us. Now to see this, to, to see this motif, here's another neural alert. We're going to have to, for about 15 minutes, think like ancient Near Eastern people. We're going to have to get back, go to, go, let's say, 2200 B.C., and put yourself in the mindset of an ancient Near Eastern person. And we have to try to understand this from their worldview. Now, that's not easy because we're dealing with an ancient culture who saw things so different from us. It's wild. But it will expand us to try to get into their, their, their worldview, and it's what we need to do if we're really going to understand the nature of the biblical text, right? So these folks, when we think of the devil, we, we think of a, you know, a, Really, it's the Greek god Pan, this red figure with horns and got a pitchfork and hooves and spiky tail or, or whatever. When they thought about evil, they thought about sea monsters. They believed that there's this water around the earth and it's, and it's hostile. It, they, they personified it. And sometimes they call it Rahab or Leviathan or sometimes Yom. Uh, which was the word for sea, but it's also the name of a real famous Canaanite deity uh, who, is, who is a symbol of chaos, Yam, the chaos deity. So we have to enter into that kind of world there, okay? Um, and we're going to see here that God, I call this God, divine Aikido. What God is always doing is turning evil. Aikido is this martial arts technique where you never act aggressively towards another. But when someone is aggressive towards you, you have techniques to turn their aggression back on themselves. So they end up hitting themselves or punishing themselves 
And you do that because you're trying to help them see the error of their ways. They're feeling the brunt of their own aggression. Well, this is, how, this is what God does on the cross. And this is what God does in the first Passover. I want us to see how this works. Okay. To begin, the first confrontation between God and Pharaoh happens in Exodus 7. And I don't have time to read this entire account. But it's important because it sets up the framework for the entire battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh that leads to the Exodus, uh, starting in, in, in Exodus 12, and culminating in Exodus 15 with the Red Sea. Now, the, this episode, uh, it has Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh demands some kind of proof that they're sent by a supernatural being called Yahweh. What's the proof? And so Yahweh had anticipated this, and so he taught Aaron what to do. And so Aaron throws his rod on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. Right? And that's pretty impressive, except that, except that Pharaoh's magicians apparently are in touch with some kind of dark magic or something because they're able to replicate it. In fact, they replicate several serpents. They, they create several serpents. Who knows how? But then, surprisingly enough, Aaron's serpent swallows, devours the magician's serpent. That's a very strange... And this is the first encounter going on here, okay? Now, what's interesting here is that Throughout the ancient Near East, serpent was a symbol of evil. In fact, um, and so what we have here is evil swallowing up evil. In fact, these serpents weren't your ordinary garden variety snakes, all right? Uh, that word is nachash in, in, in Hebrew. The word that's used here is tanin. And tanin is the word that is used of those cosmic monsters that everybody in the ancient Near East believed are threatening the earth. Uh, it's their way of symbolizing forces of evil. It's mythological, but so is our way of symbolizing evil with this pitchforked red thing. Uh, it, it, it's, it points to a reality, but the expression of itself is, 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 is mythological. But, but this is how they viewed evil, tanin. And so what, what's going on here is Aaron's tanin. It's sometimes translated sea dragon or monster. Aaron's sea monster is swallowing up Pharaoh's sea monsters. Tanim is following up tanim. Uh, uh, a passage that illustrates the way they thought about things is, is, is Isaiah 27, where it says this. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword. Leviathan, the, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. Leviathan, the word in, uh, means coily one. He will slay the monster, Tanin, of the sea. Okay, so what's going on in this first uh, encounter here is, is God is using Tanin, which everyone knows is evil, to swallow Tanin. Right? Aikido, turning evil against itself. Now, it gets a little deeper and a little bit weirder when we realize that, uh, according to the Old Testament, Egypt, a number of times, was itself portrayed as a tanin, as a sea monster. About nine times, Egypt is, is portrayed as either Rahab or Leviathan, or you know, they exchange names, or Yam, the Canaanite deity. Um, and, and Pharaoh is sometimes portrayed as the embodiment of this sea monster. And it's just the ancient way of saying that Egypt and Pharaoh, they embody the chaos and the evil that is, that is, is manifested with Leviathan. They're the incarnation, if you will, of Leviathan, of Rahab, of this sea monster. So when God allows the destroyer, which is evil, to pierce the heart of, of, of Egypt, we are again seeing Leviathan slaying Leviathan. God turning evil against evil and uh, freeing his people uh, as a result of it. And this is what runs throughout this narrative. I can't go into all the details now. I cover it in the books. But, but, but it all culminates. And here, here's where it gets weirdest of all. All right? Ancient, nearest in mindset. Stay in there. 
It all culminates with the Red Sea, right? With the defeat of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And the biblical authors portray the Red Sea as a, you guessed it, a tanin, as a sea serpent. Uh, it, it stands in the place of this ancient foe of Yahweh's, who's always seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And, and, and so when the Red Sea swallows up uh, Pharaoh's army, well, see, you find this, this, this episode recounted a number of times in the Old Testament. And when they recount, when they celebrate this, this Red Sea event, no one celebrates that Yahweh killed the soldiers by drowning them. What they all celebrate, and follow this here, is that Yahweh mastered the sea monster, the force of evil, to allow his people to go free. He, he delivered his people from the mouth of this, this sea monster. But then when Pharaoh and his army arrogantly tried to do the same thing, God let the sea monster do what the sea monster wants to do, and that's always to devour people. And since Egypt and Pharaoh are themselves embodiments of, of Leviathan, what we have here is another example of Leviathan swallowing Leviathan. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, Isaiah 51. He says, Was it not you, talking to Yahweh, who cut Rahab to pieces? He's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. Rahab is another name for these cosmic monsters. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced the monster, Tanin, through? So here the author is portraying the parting of the Red Sea as a matter of Yahweh piercing Tanin through, the sea serpent through. He creates a way for his people to go. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Now there's the word yam. And whenever you read the word sea, you should at least know that it may refer to a sea, because yam does mean sea or water, but it also could be the proper name of this Canaanite deity. And there's a number of scholars, of whom I am one, who believe that more often than not, the author intended the proper name to be in there and not uh, translating it as sea. So here, uh, it, 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 because there's a parallel with the monster, he's clearly talking about the monster. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Rahab, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea that the redeemed might cross over. So by piercing the monster, God creates a way for his children to walk through. Uh, in Psalms 77, we read this. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. Now, we don't think this way. H2O doesn't get angry or fearful or anything, but they're not talking about H2O. They're talking about cosmic forces. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. Ah, the very depths were convulsed. Oh, my God, no. what's going to happen? Your path led through the sea, Yam. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So here the author is portraying Yahweh sort of the captain of Israel, and he's walking through the, to the Red Sea, holding the hands of Aaron and, and Moses. And as he's walking up to the water, the water writhes in terror. They, they, it recognizes who Yahweh is and is terrified. So the waters back up, and that's how the, the opening in the Red Sea is created. So here comes Yahweh, and the waters go, ah! And so they all stand at bay, like, stand away, stand away. And Yahweh walks through. But you can't see his feet, because he's invisible. But he, he is there. And the waters can see him, even though he's invisible. And, and it's the terror that splits the Red Sea. Causes a path for his people to go through. Psalm 74. Listen to this one. Think like an ancient Eastern person. You divided the sea, yam, by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. So he's clearly talking about sea monsters. That's why sea should be yam, because yam is a sea monster. 
You divided Yom by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. So this author, and this is common in the ancient Near East, they, can, they think of this, this cosmic creature, Leviathan, as having many heads. Sometimes they're portrayed as having seven heads. Which, by the way, tells you he's not talking about a dinosaur, all right? So forget that stuff, right? Uh, there's some people out there on there, right? Uh, you crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So here, it's the mastery of Yahweh over the sea, over Yam, that impresses the biblical authors. And so Yahweh shows his mastery over the sea to allow his children to come uh, through the sea. And then, when they're safe, Pharaoh tries to do the same thing. And now, we're going to see another dimension of Aikido. Uh, we read this in Habakkuk. Listen to that. I told you to be the last scripture. Here it comes. You came out to deliver your people. This again is talking about the Red Sea. You save your anointed, to save your anointed one, Israel. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. Talking about Pharaoh here. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea, Yam, with your horses churning the great waters. So here's the thing. You'll recall, some of you will, when, when, when Pharaoh, he changed his mind. He let the people, the children of Israel go. Then he had a change of heart and chased after them. And I can't get into the whole thing. What about God hardening the heart thing uh, later? Or I, I've dealt with that before. Do research it. Why do I have to do everything? You guys research it. So, so, uh, he, he, so God, God uh, he, they're, they're chasing after the Israelites. God puts up this wall of fire. Uh, to, to keep them from going any further, to give time for the children of Israel to go through the sea monster that he's now divided. Then when that's done, God lifts this, this, this fire, which if you think about it, was there not just to keep the, the Egyptians from getting the Israelites, but it was also protecting the Egyptians. And if Pharaoh would have had an ounce of humility, he would have seen that he can't do what Yahweh is doing here. He can't master the sea monster. But see... He's blind with rage, he's blind with pride, he's blind with arrogance, and probably blind with pain from his firstborn son being taken. And so he not only thinks he can take on this sea monster, Habakkuk says he gloats. He gloats as one who, he thinks he's got the upper hand. Oh, now that the wall is gone, now I can go after and devour my prey. Now, I, I, now I, I, I must know I, they're already mine. And so God is using Pharaoh's own self-induced evil character against him. Uh, he should not have this kind of character, but if that's the kind of character he's going to have, God will use it and say, if you want to go after the, the Israelites and you think you can take on Yom, Leviathan, Rahab, have at it. And because of his blindness, he sends his troops into the mouth of, of Leviathan, and yet Leviathan devours them. So we've got evil fighting evil, turning against evil at every turn on this thing. God is, is using the, the, the beast of the Red Sea, the Tanim of the Red Sea, to swallow the Tanim of Egypt and the Tanim of this, this arrogant Pharaoh. And part of that is God's using the, the, the evil of Pharaoh's own character against him. Opening up this way, saying, you can go if you want, knowing that Pharaoh won't be able to resist this because he's blind with arrogance. And so God uses his arrogance against him. So... And, it starts with Aaron's serpents swallowing the serpents of the magicians. Leviathan swallowing Leviathan. That starts the whole thing and all culminates with another example of that 
uh, where they, the serpent of the Red Sea swallows the serpent of Egypt and where God turns the evil of Pharaoh's character against himself. And these are the bookends of this whole Passover narrative. And that strand, if I had time, I would show it, runs throughout that whole narrative with the plagues and, and everything else. God wisely turning evil against itself. God using Aikido to further his purposes in this world and to bring an end to evil. Now, this is exactly what Jesus does, but in a superlative way. If we look at it from that perspective, now take this to the New Testament, and let's ask the question, where do we see God doing that in the ministry of Jesus? I hope I have you curious. Good. So here's, there's four little facts, which if we connect the dots, you'll see it as clear as, as bells. It's really simple. Four, four facts of Jesus' ministry that loop into this theme. Number one, it's interesting that number of times in the New Testament, God's wisdom, the wisdom that led to the crucifixion and the resurrection, the wisdom that led to the defeat of evil, is said to be hidden and secret and mysterious. So for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we declare God's wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had understood that wisdom, but they couldn't because it was hidden and mysterious. But if they had understood that wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The word here for rulers is archonton. And, and he's referring here to the, the principalities and powers. That's the word that's used for these cosmic foes. The ones that the ancient Near Eastern people thought were sea monsters. But now we call Satan and principalities and powers and things of that sort. If they would have known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fact that it was hidden and mysterious uh, suggests that there's an element of surprise. There's a reason why God kept it hidden. Okay, so just lock that in. Number two, it's interesting and I think significant that throughout Jesus' ministry, demons recognize who he is. Just like the waters recognize Yahweh and they, they writhe in fear, uh, the demons recognize who Jesus is and they writhe in fear. Uh, they, but they don't know why he's here. So they say things like, Son of God, Son of David, why are you here? Are you here to torment us before our time? Don't send us out of here. They're confused. And the reason they're confused is because they don't understand the wisdom of God. And the reason they don't understand the wisdom of God is because they don't understand love. If you're, to the degree that you're evil, you can't fathom a love motivation. It's just, it's foreign to you. It's alien. You've got nothing in you that, 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 that resonates with that. And so they're absolutely puzzled. Why would God become a human being and make himself vulnerable? They can't even fathom the possibility that God would love this puny race of maggots enough to give his life for them. That's how we, Satan would view us, maggots, we're just waste. Why would God do that? He can't conceive of that. But what he knows is that if he's here and he's human, he's killable. And this is my jurisdiction, so I can kill him. So point number three is, Satan orchestrates the crucifixion. Uh, if the rulers of this world had known what was going on, they wouldn't have done that, but they did orchestrate the crucifixion. And so you find Satan entering the Judas and pulling some strings behind the scenes and stuff like that. But the fourth point is this. It was that very crucifixion that did Satan in. By means of the crucifixion, uh, his, his empire was brought to nothing. Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says, And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, because we were under Satan's bondage, we were dead. In that state, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set all that aside, nailing it to the cross. He crucified it. And he thereby disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example out of them, or a laughingstock out of them, triumphing over them in it. 
So Satan orchestrates the crucifixion. Like Pharaoh orchestrated the Red Sea incident. Okay, he's the one who brought that all about. And it brought about his own demise. It brought about the end of his, 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 his reign. So also, Satan orchestrates the crucifixion. It's, he, he thinks it's his brainchild. Because <laughs> he doesn't understand the wisdom of God. And what God's doing here is exactly what he did in the first exodus. He's using Satan's evil, self-induced evil character, which is incapable of understanding goodness and love. He's using that against him. So Jesus comes vulnerable. Satan doesn't know why he's here, but that is like raw meat to a pit bull. He can't resist it. And so he orchestrates this whole thing. And when he crucifies the Son of God unjustly, you see, that perfect expression of love, God becoming a human being and then going further and diving into our sin and diving into our curse, going to the furthest extreme possible, that explosion of perfect love, like, like light vanquishing darkness and, and, and love vanquishing hate and lies vanquishing truth, this, the cross event is an explosion of love and truth in the kingdom of darkness that just pushes back all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is sinister and demolishes, brings to an end uh, the, the reign of, 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 of Satan. All that Satan ever had on us was, that was all the things that were written against us. All the, every sin we ever committed gives a legal authority of Satan over us. But when, when Satan orchestrates the crucifixion of Jesus, that love washes away that sin. Praise God, as far as the east is from the west, the sin's cast from us. It's the, 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 the record is erased. So now he's got nothing on us. He's got no more ammunition. He can't accuse us anymore. There's nothing. The chains have been broken. And we have Satan to thank for it. <laughs> and that's why he's a laughing stock. He's a laughing stock, a public example. God using evil to overcome evil turning his own character against him, causing evil to, self, to, to implode. God's been doing that all throughout history, but on the cross we find it illustrated in a magnificent way. And folks, because of that, we are set free. Because of uh, our sacrificial lamb and the wisdom of God, mm, we get to get out of this bondage of Egypt, Satan's Egypt, and we get to walk into God's promised land, praise God. Because of our sacrificial lamb, because Jesus is our sacrificial lamb, we're free to get out of uh, the land of bondage that we were in and brokenness that we were in and move into God's promised land of healing and wholeness. Hallelujah. We're free to get out of that land of, that's, that's reigned, by, reigned over by the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And to move into the land, the promised land, that's ruled by the one who is love itself and beauty itself and goodness itself. Because of what our sacrificial lamb has done, we, we, are, we, are, we are free to get out of the land of bondage to the law and move into the land of God's transforming grace. And we're able to get out of the land of death and move into the land of God's beautiful love. And we're able to get out of that land of slavery and move into the land that's all about God's freedom, praise God. And we're able to see for the first time God's, the truth of who God is. We're freed from the enemy's deception. His main stronghold on us is our jaded views of God that he influences. But now we're able to see God in all of God's beauty, all of God's grace, and all of God's loveliness, and all of God's power. And we see that on the cross, praise God. And seeing the truth of who God is, what it does is it means that we're free to let ourselves be loved for free, and to be transformed by love for free, and to be compelled by love for free. Hallelujah. To be defined by God's love from the inside out, 100% for free. It's all given to us. And because the, the accuser, the cosmic lawyer, Satan has now unemployed himself. That's what he did. 
when he crucified Christ, he got rid of all his ammunition. Because of that, we're able to move out of the land of condemnation into the land, move out of the land where you're never quite enough, you never quite measure up. We were able to move out of the land where we are judged and we judged others just to survive into a land where judgment has ceased, praise God. Where God, where it says love covers a multitude of sins. Well, the love manifested on Calvary covered all the sins, praise God. And that's the land we move into. That's the promised land. That's the new covenant, folks. What it means is that this covenant is premised on us trusting God's character and trusting God's way of running the world and responding to evil, his Aikido way of responding to evil. Uh, we are called to trust God to do that, and, we're, and, and God's trusting us to do that, to replicate that kind of way of responding to aggression uh, throughout this world. Instead of falling into this myth of redemptive violence, tit for tat, strike for strike, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Jesus says, opt out of that system. I got to do a keto way of doing things. When you hit, turn the other cheek. And all of, his, all of his instructions are ways that help us stay above the fray of the evil being done to us and provides hope that we might communicate something to the person who's aggressive towards us. Paul says this in, in, in Romans 12. He says, leave all vengeance to God. All, if there's anything to get even with, if there's any price to pay, God will take care of that. We trust God to do all that, which means we don't do any of that. We get rid of all that judgment. And, and Paul says, instead, when your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. And when your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in showing that kind of kindness, in showing that kind of love, you will pour hot coals of fire on his head. Now, he's not saying, yeah, now you can find a good even. Ha, ha, finally. You know, oh, I gave it to him. It's an idiom. It's a, it's a Semitic idiom for saying you'll bring conviction on somebody. And see, when someone is acting cruel to you, but you respond with kindness, you highlight the fact, you highlight their cruelty. It, you, you make it manifest before them and thereby give them a chance to see it and maybe turn from it. You open up the door to the possibility that the person will change as a result of your kind response. If you respond in kind, tit for tat, well, you just, in their mind, you just justified them doing whatever they did to you. But when you refuse to respond in kind, when you refuse to respond to hate with hate or apathy with apathy or cruelty with cruelty, but instead live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us, you're practicing divine Aikido. You're taking their aggression and you're turning it back on them, hoping that they'll see the error of their heart, the wrongness of their ways, and repent and change. Uh, this is the call here, folks. The new covenant, it's the new Passover with the new sacrificial lamb, new exodus, new freedom, and that's what it's all about, folks. And we're to be doing this, living this way, until he returns, and it's all fulfilled with his kingdom. We commemorate the Lord's Supper as a way of uh, remembering this and a way of looking forward.